Emma Seasfield has spent the last 10 years in public education as a teacher, coach, administrator, designing and implementing supports for students with disabilities that promote skill growth and independence. Today, she is sharing so many tips, both surrounding the hybrid space, the virtual space, and even the in-person space. How do we support students with IEPs and really all students to be motivated, engaged, and feel supported in our classes. Get excited for a great strategy-filled conversation with Emma. Hi, I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Emma Seasfield, welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself for our audience in whatever way feels relevant to you after that professional intro that we started with? Yes, absolutely. Um, and first, Lindsay, I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me. Talking about myself is the hardest thing for me always. So I'm going to try my best just to boil down my introduction. Um, you know, I've been working in education for the past 11 years and have done so in a couple different capacities. So have worked as a special educator, a general education teacher, administrator, coach, um, and you know other things in between, testing coordinator, PE facilitator. Um, but really most of my time and focus has been around supporting struggling learners with engaging in rigorous math content. Um, and so that's been my biggest project and have primarily worked in the middle and high school level. I've definitely had a broad experience and have worked with teachers and everything from bilingual kindergarten art to 12th grade AP bio, so quite a spread, um, and have definitely pulled a lot of those lessons learned into my current role as a coach for a better lesson. Most recently before that, I was also part of a four-person leadership team that founded a school in LA, and my focus area there was setting up the special education department training up the teachers to support struggling learners and just designing intervention programs for the school. Wow. You have done it all. That is a lot of things and a variety of expertise. So I'm so excited that you agreed to come onto the podcast. I think our listeners will get a lot out of this conversation with you today. So I start most episodes with just this idea that Dr. Bettina Love talks about in her amazing book. I've had this idea of freedom dreaming. And so she says, this is dreams grounded in the critique of injustice. And so I'm curious to know, what is the big dream that you hold for the field of education? So when I first really thought about this question, I had trouble with it. Um, I actually talked it through with my husband a little bit. He's also a teacher, well, former teacher. He's currently in medical school. And I think I had too many things to say and too many details of things that I wanted to see for students. Um, but I think it really boiled down into two categories. So one is the feeling that I want students to have when they're going through our education system. I want education to feel empowering to students. I want it to feel exciting. 
I want students to feel valued and I want them to feel and know that they have a valuable contribution to make, um, whether it's to school or to society or to their group of friends. I want, I want students feeling positive. I want them feeling loved. Um, and I want them to feel like school and learning are really fun. Um, so that's my kind of like on the feeling side. And then obviously as a teacher, I'm also like, okay, I want this to somehow impact their lives, right? <laughs> and give them a good foundation for what they wanna do next. And so the big piece to me there was just students are making progress every day. And that by the end of their time with us as their teachers, that they are really encouraged to think flexibly and analyze critically. Um, I want students to leave with the tools that they need to have power in society and have control of their own lives. Wow. That is so good. That is so good. So I'm thinking of the feeling piece too, as we lead schools, as we teach students that often is missing or we talk about it, but we never actually ask students how they are feeling. And so we will kind of through our teacher brains or our leader brains kind of think about how students might be feeling based on some observable things that we notice during observations or something, but we often don't even ask the students. And so I love that a lot of what you do is looking at student-centered strategies and building that learner voice and thinking about ways that we do center the student experience versus how traditional education usually doesn't typically do that. And that's, I guess, one of the mindset shifts for me is how do we move from thinking about ideally having students feel this way, but not actually asking them or having any sort of perception data that we collect right around that piece. For me, that's a big mindset shift in this arena. But I'm wondering what other mindset shifts you have either noticed as, as you are teaching and learning in this space or that you coach other teachers to kind of make so that that dream really comes to life. Yeah, I, I think you've really hit on one of the mindset pieces that I am really interested in, which is taking our, our information and our direction from students and their families and from communities that we serve. One thing that I heard kind of early on in my teacher training that has helped me try to center and develop this mindset um, that I can share is we who are at the point of becoming teachers have been successful at least at some point in our educational journeys, right? So the 13 years that we spent in classrooms until college and then the four to six to however many years afterwards, we were watching teaching that whole time. And so I think sometimes we have an instinct that what helped us is gonna help others. And it's true sometimes, but it's not always the case. And so I think we spend, you know, we spent 13, 13 years learning the best way that we learn. And then that's been our biggest teacher training, right? Because even if you've been in teacher college for four years, that's still only four years as compared to what you had prior. Um, and so I think pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone and, and what we think is right and the best way and really like opening our eyes and ears and seeing who we have sitting in front of us on a given year and a given day um, and trying to listen to the needs of that group and figure out how to support and fill and address those needs. Um, and, you know, recognizing that the strengths our students have might be different than the strengths that we have um, and trying to capitalize on those individually rather than kind of trying to apply the model that worked for us universally as one key piece. And I think 
that'll lead us to think really critically about how we present content and how we measure mastery. It brings me also to another mindset shift that I read about. And again, I don't have a source for this, so I will get back to you on that. One of the readings and kind of like watchings that I did recently was around shifting our mindset from students learn when they want to, to students learn when they can, and figuring out what pieces are within our control as school leaders or educators, um, you know, to push towards, towards growth and towards feeling comfortable at school. Um, I think there are a lot of ways in which we are not, you know, fully in control of all of the equity and access pieces that we would like to be in control of maybe um, to make sure students get what they need, but certainly like, you know, looking at what we have within our roles um, and trying to figure out and identify exactly what we can do to um, really support students so that they're in a place where they can learn. I love that shift from, it's not when they want to, it's when they can. And I also love the idea that we have been kind of stuck in this traditional, I mean, likely a traditional educational model for years, even like you're saying prior to teacher school. And I also would say many teacher programs are also still teaching in the traditional model, even if they're preaching something else. And so I think that's a really interesting, that's very true. it's really interesting for us to experience that, <laughs> that dissonance there. It's so foundational that we have that conversation. And it's interesting because I, I just had this conversation with one of my friends from high school. I was telling her, you know, I'm into like student-centered learning and project-based learning and all this cool stuff. And she's like, well, what's wrong with how we learned? We learned perfectly well that way. She was like top of the class. And I hear that often in teachers as well, family members as well, as we're getting everybody on board with a student-centered model, there's a shift to be made. And I love that you just highlighted it beautifully in that way. Yeah, I think it's definitely, um, you know, something that we all grew up with. And so it makes it a little bit harder to leave it behind. Right. It's like this collective, like we've all experienced it in this way thinking about how we actually get out of that traditional mindset, the way that often does not work for many students, what actions are required? And, and I often say brave actions because it going against tradition is a brave step. And so we need brave teachers and brave leaders that kind of step into this action in a brave way. What would you suggest for, for teachers or leaders supporting teachers kind of doing this work? I think brave is a great way to put it because I think you're right when whenever we get into an experimental mode or trying to define or do new things, it can be terrifying. <laughs> I was going to say scary, but I think I'll elevate it to terrifying. Um, and I am one that's not um, super comfortable with change in my life anyways. So for me, it's maybe even harder. I don't know for some than for some people, but I think it comes down to really being open and courageous enough to look at our own practice, um, our own words and actions and evaluate how effective they've been. Um, and that's both towards like creating that safe environment piece for students and also towards pushing for student growth. Being able to identify missteps and being okay with that um, and still feeling confident to move forward and make changes um, is the first piece. Um, and then I think being open to facing a momentary failure in the service of growth is a huge thing. And I think that that's really like, you know, encompasses everything that we've talked about. But I think 
you know, sometimes being scared that something will flop or that you'll have, you know, 30 faces or 30 black screens with names on them um, there with you while it happens is definitely, you know, nerve wracking. And of course, um, you know, as a teacher, we are also responsible to our administrators. And as administrators, we're also responsible to our district, you know, goals and things like that. And so I think sometimes it can be scary to let go of things we know sort of work, trying to find something that works better. But I would say we have to commit to doing that um, and creating a safe space for our teachers or our leaders to do that and to experiment and, and be okay with it if it doesn't work perfectly the first time. And I think lastly, and this one has been hard for me sometimes too, um, and that's instead of waiting for the right time or for like a statewide or district-wide or school-wide plan or waiting for like a perfect idea to strike you where you know there's no chance that it'll flop, um, I think we have to act now in whatever way we can um, to drive toward equity and access for students because I think the longer we wait, obviously, you know, the students are sitting in classrooms longer um, without what they need. And it's definitely nerve wracking and not everything we do will be the right next step. Um, but I think that even those wrong steps and missteps teach us important things um, and will help us move forward faster. I love that you say that. Cause I think one of the things, I mean, we both lead professional workshops and, and coach folks in this space who are really have been forced this year, particularly in last year to shift their practice in a drastic way. And so I think one of the things, particularly around equity, when we lift that conversation up and we actually uncover like what's going on with teachers in reference to trying equitable strategies, a lot of folks are saying, I'm scared to get it wrong. And because I'm scared to get it wrong, I'm not acting. And so what you're saying is so important because I think that like immobilization for a lot of people comes from a place of fear and the learning orientation has really helped me in my experience. So working with students and saying, Hey, I'm trying this, like, let's be really transparent with our kiddos and just say like, we're trying this out today. This is a new strategy that I learned about or saw someone else do please let me know if it's a total failure. Like I would like you to tell me if this just does not work for you. Um, I'm curious to know, are there any things that you personally have done as a teacher to help you with that fear? The first piece that you mentioned about being transparent with students, maybe even families, depending on where or what type of strategy you're you know, trying is the first important thing. And I think in addition to helping us decrease our own sense of anxiety about whatever we're going to do by sharing. I think it also gives students a good model um, for that social emotional practice of being scared and nervous, but still engaging and asking for support from the people around us in our community. I think one of the things I've been learning a lot from my elementary teachers that I'm coaching this year is the importance of modeling all of the social emotional skills that we expect from students in our practice. And so I think that that could potentially serve two purposes, which is great in teaching because we have a lot to do. Um, and then I think the other piece is to be okay with being scared. It's good to a certain extent to be anxious or scared about the outcomes of things because it, it, it means that we really care about how it affects our students and the impact that it has. So I think that that sense of like, ooh, I really want this to go well is a good thing. Um, but I think trying to do some strategies like sharing with students or sharing myself, my, my biggest strategy is to share with my peers and colleagues and to say, hey, I'm going to try this and I'm scared it's going to be a flop. What would you recommend? Or, you know, um, are there any 
strategies that you have and try to kind of pick their brain or at least tell them like, I'm scared of this and I need someone to hold me accountable to reflecting afterwards. So let's talk on Friday, you know, stuff like that, I think really helps me the social piece to it um, helps support me through as long as I know someone else is there fourth period thinking about me trying something hard, it's a little easier to do it. I love that. And I think it speaks to what you were talking about earlier with, you know, leaders, teachers answering to leaders and leaders answering to districts and creating that culture of safety with risk and informed risk taking and and challenging the status quo and that kind of thing. Because I'm just imagining like a PLC or something where we just start off the conversation with what's a risk that we took this week, just something super social, but also super low stakes. And then me as like a box checker, I always want to like check the box and do the thing that I'm supposed to do. So I want to be like, okay, so I need this thing to bring to the meeting to say in the first five minutes, I have to have taken a risk or else I'm going to have nothing to say. And so I think things like that, that social accountability piece and that building a culture of informed risk-taking is really valuable there. So I love those strategies. I like that too. um, The one that you actually just mentioned, because I think it could also encourage people to take the level of risk that they're ready for, right? So a lot of, something I talk about with my teachers a lot is okay, you know, maybe we'll look at a strategy like choice boards and trying to really personalize learning and do that for a full period or a full week. And they're like, oh, well, how much planning is that? And what if students don't choose something that's aligned to their skill? Or what if um, they can't figure out how to do X, Y, and Z independently? And so I talk a lot about the size of the risk. So let's say a choice board is a little scary. Let's give a warm up with like, you know, three different options first and see how that goes. And so I think tailoring it to, to what you're ready for And I think that that's okay for everyone to start at different places and feel it out a little bit before committing to making gigantic changes. That's so helpful too, that you're speaking from the instructional coach lens too. So instructional coaches listening can also have that in mind too. When, when we have what we might call resistance or hesitation or fear coming out from a teacher, like this is a great moment of pivot or a great way to to pivot and ask like, where can we be challenged and where really aligns with our vision versus like this teacher is resistant and I just can't do anything with them. I really appreciate too, that you're sharing specific strategies. Like the choice board example is wonderful. I'm wondering, you wrote a phenomenal white paper for better lesson. It is an amazing resource and I'm actually going to link to it for everyone listening. You get access to this because Emma is so amazing. She's sharing it with us all. And so you'll be able to look through everything listeners once you're done with the episode. But Emma, I'm wondering if you could just maybe talk about a couple of the strategies that you wrote about in the PDF. And then I love that you also broke it down by like challenge. So I don't know if you want to talk about a strategy in the context of if this student is having this challenge, here's what you could do, but I'd love for you to just share some of those brilliant ideas with folks. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to share this as a resource. Um, I think before I jump in and talk about specific strategies, which I will do right now, um, but I also think one of the pieces that connects the paper that we're going to be talking about to kind of the rest of our conversation, I think, is the idea of orchestrating an environment both like with materials and instruction, but also just, you know, classroom culture and rules and systems, Um, really listening to what students need and paying attention to what a root cause may be of whatever is, you know, on the surface going wrong or a challenge as, you know, from the way we see it in our vantage point Um, and really identifying root causes that are leading to that. And then also things within our control that we can apply to the situation to see if they will make a shift for students. And so it's kind of that idea of 
identifying what we can do um, and really identifying the why behind what's going on with students. And so the way that I thought about this was to present a challenge first and then to move into what might be the cause of that challenge and what we can do. I really thought more class-wide um, because I think that one of the things I was learning and noticing from working with all of my teachers um, who are working in virtual environments right now is that it's very hard to be able to do anything individually with students. Um, if you don't have a TA or a second teacher with you, um, some people are lucky enough to have that, but I think most not. And so I really tried to frame it from a perspective of how can we build a, a supportive and inclusive envi environment rather than like, how can we give individual interventions to different students? So taking some of the ideas and concepts behind universal design for learning and just saying like, what can we apply for everybody? I think where I'll start first is the emotional support piece. I just want to highlight that right now because one, we're talking about creating an environment for students. And then two, I think a lot of us have heard in our schools and districts a lot more of a focus on trauma-informed strategies and social emotional learning in the past couple years. Um, and then I also think with seeing lot, a lot of evidence of racism within our culture, police brutality, um, and separately another public health crisis, um, you know, the pandemic, I think a lot of our students are facing a lot of trauma, maybe even students that used to not be so exposed are seeing the news or YouTube or, you know, Facebook and are exposed to really, you know, things that could be harmful to them. And so I'll focus on those just in case you're reading along at home. I know you're not, but once you get this freebie, you will be, and you'll probably re-listen to this podcast a couple times. So page nine and 10 of the guide. First, I think just general emotional needs. A couple of the things that I've tried to incorporate this year and that I think can be helpful to building that supportive environment is first a check-in piece. So collecting information from students about how they're doing. Um, and that, that helps in two ways. So one, as a teacher, you head into class really understanding and knowing what's going on with your students as you start into instruction, which as we all know, can really affect how present they are um, and you know how, how they're feeling and what they're able to engage with. And then the other piece is that if you track your mood and emotion um, over time, it generally leads to a better ability to recognize those moods and emotions and regulate them. So you're giving students a way of doing that and you're also yourself using it to make sure that you know how they're doing. And then the second piece to that um, is also giving them some strategies to use. So in addition to just the monitoring piece, really like some tangible things that they can do in the moment. And so those can look like incorporating mindfulness strategies in class. And I think this can be done in person and virtually really easily. So in person, there are different techniques we can do like demonstrating breathing exercises or other things that keep them kind of by their chairs. I know with COVID, we have some six feet restrictions. Um, but I think, you know, if you're standing right behind your chair, potentially some yoga moves or physical ways to release some energy and recenter. And then virtually, there are so many apps that can help with, um, with calming and with emotional support. I know some are available on iPads, some on Chromebooks, and I think teaching students how to use some of those resources can, can be a good, a good way to help them feel more in control of how they're doing um, and know how to respond in moments where they're really struggling. 
Another challenge that I identified that I think could be impacting a lot of our students is rising frustration and negative thought cycles. And I think that this is related to having so many changes happen throughout the year and students feeling like they are having a hard time keeping up with the content. One thing that happens when we get into negative thought cycles is that we, um, we have confirmation bias. So we start thinking things are bad. And then when we see bad things, it confirms that things are really bad um, and it keeps going. And so both of the strategies that I offered are interrupters for that. Um, and so the first is partnering with students caretakers to support, make sure that we're all on the same page. And then also to really make sure that we're sending home positive information to them so that they can be incorporating that into conversations with their, um, their children. And also because I think that this remote learning has been so hard on parents too, that I think hearing those positive messages could be really impactful this year. In person, what that could look like is sending home positive notes like we used to see if you're able to. Um, if we're still in a no physical materials going home, I think sending emails or texts is great. And then virtually setting up a meeting with a student's caretakers, talking to parents about their input and their goals for the year and really getting aligned with families is the first key way to help students. And I think secondly is just communicating positive actions that we're seeing, whether that's to families or to students themselves and kind of breaking the narrative that everything is, is going wrong and really showing them where there are bright spots um, and where they're demonstrating strengths in the midst of all that we're going through. Um, and so, you know, we used to really use positive news boards in class um, or other kind of ways of physically displaying great work. And then I think virtually we can do things either similarly or can have a leaderboard, um, you know, of students that are doing great work. Um, you know, Google Slides, Jamboard, all of our nice tools that we have at our disposal this year. But I think the key point is breaking that cycle of thinking. I love that you said earlier too, this applies to teachers and adults as well as children. And so that's a really key piece. I think just to be able to think about our colleagues and ourselves as we do this work. Um, I also was just thinking you mentioned earlier something about because teachers are so pressed for time. It's nice when we can do two things in one. And so I was just recalling a teacher that I coached. She had the students record their own positive news, like in consultation with her, almost like as she was conferencing with them. And so it was something she was doing in class already. And the students had a great opportunity to send that positive news home uh, via video without her needing to spend, you know, hours after school recording a separate video. And so I love the ways that we can find overlap in some of these strategies as well. I love that too. And I had a, a teacher who didn't use quite the same strategy, but it was a similar strategy that she used biweekly. So every two weeks, her students composed emails to their families with updates for the week of things that they did really well and things that they were still working on. And it, it did a similar thing where it shared that communication with families. They felt connected to her class, but it was also highly, you know, student owned. And they obviously, again, in consultation with her to make sure the most critical stuff was also represented to families, um, but they really got to display what their strengths were to their families and what they were still thinking about in terms of like areas for growth and stuff like that. That's such a great task. If you're an English teacher or something or a writing teacher, like, okay, I'm writing emails. Like I'm writing with a purpose and it's probably going to kickstart like the dinner conversation or something where normally I wouldn't know what to say. So I love that so much. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us from this amazing resource before we move to wrap up? 
something that I thought about as I was putting it together, which is obviously this list is in no way exhaustive of all of the things we could be doing for students. Um, and some of these things you may try and they may backfire. Um, and I think that I, I, what I want to do is highlight the kind of spirit of what we were talking about earlier, where these are some tried and true ideas that have worked in some contexts, but um, my push for everyone is always to imagine and kind of reimagine what things could look like for you and for your students and their specific needs. And so I would say go through this with um, looking to be inspired, not looking to use the exact strategy, because I know that we all need to make tweaks for our individual classrooms. And that's part of working towards um, the equity and access goals that we were talking about before. When we are able to share ideas like this with each other, often we create even cooler ideas just in the sharing and in the brainstorming of adaptations and possibilities. So there's always some really cool thing that comes out of sharing stuff like this. So thank you so much for being willing to share this with everyone and for putting it together. It is an extensive resource. So it is amazing. I was shooting for like a page and a half and then all of a sudden I looked up and then it was just way too gigantic <laughs> for taking the time to look at it. I'm so excited for everyone to see it. And so as we think about wrapping up, what is one thing, I know you suggested several strategies, but what's one thing you would encourage listeners to do once they end this episode? How do we live in alignment with these principles of justice and equity? How do we be our best selves for our students? What is just one thing that teachers or leaders could do? Again, this was a challenge because when I thought about it, I was like, okay, what are all the things I want to do? And all of a sudden my list was like 25 pages long. And I think again, going back to what I said earlier, that can sometimes be a trap for us to feel like, okay, if I don't have everything planned out, I can't get started. Um, and so again, I'm going to say lower the stakes for ourselves, really be comfortable with starting wherever we are comfortable starting, um, asking for help and reaching out when we want to, you know, more information or to do something new. And I think the biggest piece within all of this is deciding what's important for us. So for me, it's that feeling of safety and empowerment in the classroom and also, you know, coupled with really learning um, during the day. And I think what it will take for all of us is to really listen to our students and families about what they need. And I think if similar to what you were saying before, if you're thinking about making a change for the class, I would say, and you're not exactly sure what to do or what way to go. Um, one thing that I have found pretty useful and actually I think better for students than when I kind of come in with a fully formed idea is coming in and saying, hey, I've identified this challenge in our classroom. What do you guys think would be a better way to handle it? And for the most part, I think our students come up with exactly either what we would come up with or something even better and more creative. And so I would say just start there and um, be open with your class and generate ideas with them together. And I think that can work for any age group. I know that we may you know, think about having different conversations with high school students than we do with elementary school students, but all of our students can articulate things that they want um, and things that feel good to them. And so I think that um, starting there is a, great, is a great place and a great resource. In my researcher role, research in the student voice field where teachers who teach kindergartners have been able to help the kindergartners share their hopes and dreams for the class in a way that's really concrete. Like the, the whole class geography shifted and, you know, this is the way the room is designed now because the students highlighted this challenge that I didn't even see. And so I love the idea of incorporating student voice in that way. And I love your 
advice that this happens at any level because it absolutely can. And I actually think in some ways it's harder for high school students to come up with creative solutions. So when you said that students often come up with what we come up with at the high school level, sometimes I think that's because that's all they know they've had, as you said, right? 13 years of teaching, this is how it goes. And so they know the predictable responses their teachers will come up with. The kindergartners will surprise you with their creativity and awesome. Absolutely. I think you're, I think you're spot on about that. As leaders, as coaches, as educators, we're constantly learning and growing. And so I am sure there is something that you have been learning about lately or something that you've been working on to help other teachers or or leaders or coaches grow their practice. Is there anything you want to share with us? Well, I first want to say I'm learning every day. I think in every situation that I'm in, I take something out of it, like, hmm, that didn't go quite the way I thought or, you know, stuff like that. And what I have been learning most recently and has felt like the biggest leap for myself has been um, going back to a school in a classroom um, at, you know, during this time and actually interacting with students teaching virtually Last year when we migrated online, I was living in Barbados because as I said, um, my husband was in medical school there. So I was not teaching at the time. Um, I had ideas. I had taught blended learning classes. And so I had, you know, obviously strategies that could work that I shared with teachers and we all kind of worked together and shared best practices. But it feels really different to see students every day to see exactly what the online learning piece looks like. Um, to just get a sense from students about how they're doing and really be in that mode um, and in that role has been a huge learning experience for me. And I don't think that that is going to be particularly revolutionary to any teacher listeners because I know they've all been doing that all year. Um, But I think what I do want to say is just this year has affected so many of us in so many ways. Um, I think, you know, everyone faced, I was trying to think of someone who didn't face a challenge this year or like, you know, someone related to education that didn't face a challenge. But I think every single person in this world faced challenges this year with work and school and life and, you know, security and food and just everything. And so I think, I think one of the biggest learnings that I'm trying to have this year is that again, that flexibility of thinking and feeling out what's right and what the end goal should be based on what we have and what we're going through. And so I would just encourage everyone to be proud of the, the wins that they've had this year. Um, and to think about next year as hopefully a more consistent start for our students when we can get back to some normalcy and preserve some of the cool stuff we learned, um, but you know, have more consistency for kids. Awesome. Thanks, Emma. And finally, where can listeners learn more about you or connect with you online? I'm like very not online savvy and all my cousins are like 10 years younger than me they had to help me set up my voicemail like for example and the fact that I don't have a TikTok is like I'm ostracized from the cousins group chat and stuff but I do have a LinkedIn um so if you guys want to search me on LinkedIn um that's my social media (laughs) awesome and I can drop a link to Emma's LinkedIn in the show notes as well Emma thank you so much for this amazing conversation I've loved having you on thank you Lindsay I appreciate it and you are a very wonderful host. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Alliance or leave a review of the show so leaders like you will be more likely to find it. 
To continue the conversation, you can head over to our Time for Teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Thank you.